It's good to be with you this morning and to have this opportunity to stand before you. I've said it before, I always love when I get the opportunity to speak here. Um, it's special to me. Y'all have watched me grow up just as much as I've watched all of y'all grow old. It's just how it is. Y'all, y'all really have watched me grow up, been a big part in raising me. And we've changed. All of us have changed a lot over these years. And that's how it goes. We change, we grow, and hopefully we're all growing closer to God all the time. Well, from the time, really our whole lives, but you think about the time from about 15 to 30. Like the time from the time you turn 15 until you turn 30, you're constantly changing this one thing after another. You start to learn how to drive at 15. You're just ready to hit the road. All you want to be is 16. And you turn 16, you're driving, but you're running all the errands. And then all you want is to be 18. And then so on and so on. You get to college. You get to college, you figure out what you want to do, you start doing it. But then you finish school, oh boy. Then you finish school, you start working, and you work, you work. Well, that's where I'm at right now. And along the way, I decided that I wanted preaching to be part of my work. And so I approached the elders here about an internship of sorts, a preacher training, we'll call it, uh, with Steve. And he agreed, they agreed. And so I've been doing that for the last 15 or so months. Well, I changed jobs in February, and I met a girl who's now my fiance. And so that is taking up more time. And so this will be the end of my internship here at Eastside. Um, I've learned so much as we've gone. As I've gone through this, um, y'all have taught me so much. Um, And Steve, man, I wish Steve was here this morning um, for this, but he deserves such a big thank you. One of the best times that we spent together each each week or every couple weeks was going out to lunch together. Uh, Once or twice a week we would go out to lunch, and um, that was when... I really got to know him and really got to know what he does in a way that I don't see even working with him at the building. And he's constantly, constantly busy. He's always in a private study. He's teaching at the Bible school. He's doing so much all the time. It's admirable. And at the same time as I was learning about him, he was learning about me and learning what my goals were or are as dual wanting to share the gospel, but also wanting to serve and take care of others as a nurse. And as, as we talked and as, as um, he learned more and understood better, um, he said, well, you know, you don't have to preach full time to be effective and to be useful to congregations. There's plenty of places that need fill-ins. There's plenty of places that can't support a full-time preacher, and so they have two or three men that rotate through, and you could fill one of those roles. 
So listening to him, listening to other preachers, in addition to what I've read from others like Sewell Hall and Paul Arnhart, I've come to the decision that for right now, the plan is not for me to pursue a full-time preaching position, but to do that fill-in kind of work in lots of places. So while it may not look like out of this internship, I'm you know going out and you know working with one church, I hope to be able to encourage and um, build up multiple churches in this area as well as other areas. So thank you. Thank you to all of you for your support, for um, your prayers publicly and privately, for your, your comments, your, um, your points for further study. All of it has built me up over this year, and um, I look forward to continuing to attend here and continuing to work here. But if I'm absent as much as I have been recently, it's probably because I'm either preaching somewhere or down in Coleman for some reason. So... Thank you. And consider this a long introduction to change. You know, why am I thinking about change? Because I'm going through a lot of them right now. But we are, all the time. Like I said, any teenagers we have are going through tons of them. You know, we got some going up to middle school, some going up to high school. We've got some that are driving. We get older, we've got some who are moving houses. We've got some who are changing jobs. Change, change, change everywhere. There's all kinds of change, all kinds of change that we go through. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond when we're met with change? The expected change, the changes that we make, the unexpected changes, the ones that happen to us without us having much say in them. And should we be changing? Should we be changing or should we refuse to change? We'll look at all of these this morning, starting with the changes that we make, the ones that we choose to make. This could include a change in job, a change in location, housing. This could be any number of things from the people that we associate with to anything else. These are the things that we enact. They can be good, right? We can make good changes, changes that help us grow. Or we can make changes that end up being bad for us and lead us in the wrong direction. Let's start by looking at some of the good changes. Um, hopefully in everything we do, we grow closer to God. We're going to look at a character change. Most of, most of what we're going to see today is a change in character, but a lot of it is based on a change in a situation. And we're going to start with Naaman. Naaman is struck with leprosy. And... Leprosy was a sentence of exile. It was going to leave you isolated. It was going to leave you with no one except fellow lepers. Naaman. Who was Naaman? Naaman was the commander of the Assyrian army. Assyria. The empire rising up right now as Israel's getting ready to fall. Naaman had power. He was rarely, if ever, told no. He was the big guy, just under the king. So Naaman has a change. He's struck with leprosy, and 
what am I going to do? Well, his wife's maidservant was a Jew. And she said, if only my master knew uh, or could go to the prophet in Israel, he could heal him. So Naaman, in his um, grandeur, takes a caravan full of gifts and people and goes to Israel. He goes to the house of Elisha. And while he's there, he gets there and Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He sends instead a messenger out to say, hey, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Naaman is just shocked by this. He says in verse 11, he became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Could, not, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in rage. He was not happy with this. This was not what he ex- expected, not what he wanted. Why? He was the top of the top. He expected to at least be talked to. Surely, surely there was something better than the Jordan River. The murky, muddy Jordan River in Israel. But his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the man of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman went and did it. He humbled himself enough to go and do it. And then he comes, he he has a whole different attitude coming back to Elisha, doesn't he? In verse 15, he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. He knows that the God of Israel is the one true God. He offers gifts. He offers Elisha gifts for what what he did for him. But Elisha says no. He, He turns them down. So notice what Naaman says next. In verse 17. He says, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. He anticipated what was going to happen next. When he went back, he was going to be in this position with the king, and he he asked that God pardon him in this thing. So Elisha then says, go in peace, and he departed. Naaman had a problem. He had a problem beyond the leprosy. A problem that he needed to change. 
He needed to change that before he could be healed, before he could be cleansed. And he did. He changed for the better and he was cleansed. Now let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and we'll look at Paul. Paul, or as he was Saul at this point. We know what kind of man he was. He was very devout, very dedicated to the Jews and to God as far as he knew. He was persecuting the church because it was against the law of Moses. It was preaching contrary to what he knew, what they knew the Scriptures to say. In verse chapter, or in verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him in the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is ready to pull Christians from everywhere. Pull them to Jerusalem where they will be tortured and killed for following Christ. Well, Paul meets Jesus on the road, right? Jesus comes to him on the road. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is struck with blindness. He's told to go to Damascus. Continue to Damascus and wait. Ananias comes to him there. He's baptized and scales fall off of his eyes and he can see. So what happens next? What happens next for Saul here? Look at verse 20. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So it was well known, it seems, that Saul was coming to Damascus in order to get these letters. He was coming in order to persecute the church. But instead, he's baptized. He changes. And immediately he begins preaching. He begins preaching Jesus. Paul went through a number of changes here. All of them for the better. But we can also change for the worse. We see many who did throughout the Bible. We'll look at Lot in Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis 13, we see the decision to separate um, the crowds or the um, the herds of Abraham and Lot are too great, and so Abraham says, "Let's not let's not squabble, let's separate because there's plenty of land here." So he gives Lot the choice: if you go to the right, I'll go to the left; if you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. Lot has the choice of all the land. He sees the plains of Jordan; they're well watered, good for the herds. And he chooses that land for himself. But what's the problem with it? Verse 12, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. We won't turn there and go through it, but we know what happens. In chapter 18, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Gomorrah. 
Abraham says, for the sake of 40 people, 30, 20, all the way down to 10 people. Will you destroy the city for the sake of 10 righteous people? God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. But he, there were not 10 righteous. So the angels go to Sodom and they are approached very forcefully by the men of the city at Lot's house. But the city is going to be destroyed. Lot and his family leave the house. On the way, his wife looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. They flee into the mountains and Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Lot saw the produce, the potential of this land. Did he know the spiritual condition of it? We aren't told. But in the end, that change brought calamity on his family. What about Israel? In chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, well, we know what's going on because we just finished studying it. We, we just finished studying the period of Joshua and the judges. So we know where Israel is right now. They've been in the cycle of continual disobedience, repentance, deliverance, and so on. They're here. Eli's sons, Samuel's sons, the priests, they weren't faithful. They weren't doing what God instructed them. And so the people said, your sons do not walk in your ways. You're old. You can't lead us. Give us a king to rule over us. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel goes to God and Basically, is saying, "What do we do? Like, I mean, where do we go? These people are abandoning you." And in verse twelve, verse eleven, God tells Samuel to tell them exactly what a king will do for them. So, starting in verse eleven, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them over his own chariots and to be his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and so on and so on and so on. He's going to take your men. He's going to take your women. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take the best of everything you have, your oxen, your Everything. He's going to tax you, tax you, tax you. Well, how does that play out for Israel? They get decent kings from that perspective with Saul and David. They're, they're not overly oppressive on the people. But then Solomon comes along. Solomon builds for his entire reign. First, the house of God. Well, that's necessary. That, that's important. That needed to be done. But David had already prepared for all of that. He already had the materials for it. He had the workers lined up even. Solomon just had to come through and do it. But then Solomon built 
a palace for himself that took twice as long to build as the temple did. For his whole reign, he was building, building, which required money, resources. How did he get that? He took it from the people. So then when it came time for the next king, for Rehoboam, Rehoboam was asked by the people, please make our, make our loads lighter. Instead, he decided to make things heavier. He said, my little finger will be as my father's thigh. It's going to get harder. It's going to get worse. You're going to give me more and more and more. This is besides what they were commanded to give to God as well. They were supposed to give a tenth of everything to God. Now on top of that, they're probably giving 30, 40, 50% to the king. Well, the kings weren't exactly the spiritual leaders that they were supposed to be either. As time goes on, through the divided kingdom especially, we see king after king turning against God. Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the evilest of Judah. He had his sons pass through the fire. He did all kinds of terrible things to the house of God. But he was spared because he did turn back to to the Lord. But in his reign, it was decided and doomed that Judah would go into captivity. Bad choices will affect us in bad ways. It's that simple. These They, they look like good decisions to, from the outset. A well-watered land or the leadership and prosperity under a king. What does it turn into? When, we make, when we're looking to make changes, we have to consider every angle of how it will affect us. Maybe, maybe Lot could have gotten there, seen the situation, and left and gone somewhere else. Once the people of Israel decided to have a king, there wasn't really going back on that. They were, they were stuck with kings at that point. But every possible perceivable angle of decisions we make must be addressed to do what we can to avoid changes that affect us for the worse. But there's changes that we don't make. There's family situations, job situations, interpersonal relationships that we can't fix. Things change that we can't control. So how do we react? For instance, we have David or Daniel. I'm going to be saying David now. Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Where did they start? They were in Judah. They were taken captive because of, going back, the decisions of their kings. Daniel and his three friends, young, young. Some of them could have been a decade younger than me. That's scary to think about. If they were 14, 15 years old, leaving everything they know, being taken forcibly to a land that it just destroyed their home. They were, for, they were part of the first group taken. They were the cream of the crop. 
the ones who could be educated, we see starting in verse 3, verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. Then the king instructed Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants, some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These young men, taken from their home to a new land with new customs, new food that they were not permitted to eat as Jews, and a new language to learn. Well, what else happens? Verse 7 to them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shagrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. All of these names in service of false gods. How did these young men react? Boys. We could call them boys for that matter. How did they react when they were put in these situations? Well, we know their stories well because of how they responded. They responded well. They responded by putting trust in God. In verse 8 of chapter 1, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. He asked for a trial. Ten days of nothing but vegetables and water. He's given it. And he and his friends are stronger than the others. God blessed them. Over and over again, we see the dream in chapter 2, the fiery furnace in chapter 3, the den of lions in chapter 6. Over and over again, these young men, then by the end, not so young men, are put to the test every time they put their faith in God and then God blesses them because of it. They did an admirable job of adjusting to the changes that were thrust upon them. Well, Paul and Silas. In Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 16, there in Philippi. While in Philippi, they're going through the streets and this demon-possessed girl is annoying Paul. And so he, in that frustration, just turns and casts the demon out. When he does, these, these men have now lost profit because of what this demon would tell people for money. So they get the crowd up. They strip Paul and Silas. They beat them with many stripes. And they throw them into the inner prison. So at midnight, they're singing and praying. What's the end of that story? What's the result of their actions here? The earth shakes, doors are open, all the prisoners are let go, but they stay. They stay, and as a result, the jailer and his family are baptized. They become a large part, we assume, of the church at Philippi. 
So then when Paul writes back later, who's he writing to? To Lydia and to this jailer. When we respond well to changes beyond our control, then God is with us. God is with us and will build us up. And it'll give us opportunities to share with others. So the question is, should we be changing? Well, it's inevitable that we will be changing. So we should be changing. We should be changing in a direction of growth. Growth is one form of change. Go to Second Peter with me. Second Peter chapter three. Verse eighteen, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter's last charge here was to grow. To grow in the grace and knowledge. If you go back to 2 Peter 1, you see uh, we see a lot more about how we do that. But that's his final words to the brethren. To grow. So if we're going to grow, then yes, we're going to be changing. But also, we need to change if we're living in sin. If we're in sin and it's keeping us from from serving God, then yes, we need to change that too. So go over to Acts chapter 19 with me. Acts chapter 19. Here, these men are saying that they can cast out demons. They tried to exercise this demon, but instead the demon overpowers them and sends them running naked through the streets. What's the response of the people? In verse 18, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. These people were willing to put everything behind them in order to serve God. They changed for the better. But there's times when we cannot change. When we have to refuse to change. The apostles in Acts chapters 4 and 5 were demanded by the leaders of the Jews to change. In chapter 4 in the aftermath of healing of the lame man the apostles are put in jail or they're brought before the leaders. I'm sorry. And they're told, do not preach in this name. Do not preach in the name of Jesus. In chapter 5, they go out and preach. And preach and preach and preach. They do so publicly, openly. They do it at the temple. So they're thrown in jail. An angel lets them out of jail. Tells them to go back and keep doing it. So that's exactly what they do. They preach and preach and preach in the open, doing miracles, drawing large crowds. So they end up back before the leaders of the Jews again. In chapter 5, 
And starting in verse 28, the leaders say, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. It's Peter's response. We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. The apostles refused to stand down. They refused to change. They refused to stop preaching Christ. But there's times when refusing to change isn't a good thing. We see all these men who have changed for the better. What if they hadn't changed? What about the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? They go back and forth. But Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. But the man went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. He wasn't willing to change. He was comfortable where he was. He enjoyed where he was. He wanted something easy to do, something he was already doing. Oh, good, I've got it. He wasn't willing to do, as of this point, what he needed to do. He refused to change, and he went away sorrowful. In Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, Paul is before King Agrippa. He's making his defense, and he tells King Agrippa his, his story. His conversion story. What happened? Paul has one of the most convincing conversion stories in the Bible. He was strong in the teachings of the Jews. He was devout. But he learned a better way. And he changed. And he started preaching Christ. And started being beaten for Christ. And being thrown in jail and shipwrecked, and all these things for the cause of Christ. So now he's before King Agrippa. And this is his response. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Paul almost had him convinced. He believed, but he wasn't willing to take that step. Almost persuaded. The question is this morning... Are we changing? Well, the answer to that is probably yes. But how are we changing? Are we changing for the better? To God's glory? Are we changing to better ourselves in His service? 
Or are our changes leading us in the wrong direction? Where are we at this morning? Only you and I can answer that for ourselves. Can we help you change this morning? Maybe you haven't become a Christian. Change. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away this morning. Or maybe you are a Christian and you've changed. You've changed and are living in sin. If we can help you change this morning, if we can facilitate that, please come as we stand and sing together.